Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. I think all of us have wondered to ourselves at one point what our dream house would look like. And more importantly, how the interior design of that of certain rooms would be. Anyway, I've thought about it numerous times, especially, you know, when I've been on business trips in certain hotels. And in this dream house of mine, I know that there would be a particularly room, particular room for myself, just, just for myself, the man cave, so to speak. And um, I can kind of describe it to you. There would be a fireplace, dark Chesterfield with a desk, you know, with the, with the green leather on top to make the writing really, you know, tactile. Um, somewhere I could smoke cigars with and invite my friends and have private conversations and a fully stocked cabinet of whiskey with the decanters ready to go. But leading off it, I would have a library, a library full of classics, a library full of auction catalogs, a library full of books about watches that I could just sit down and peruse through with a glass of whiskey. And whilst I know so far, at least, this room remains a dream, I feel one step closer in making it reality because I have somehow found the person I would ask to curate such a library. It is our next guest, Miranda Maraccini, who is a librarian at the Horological Society of New York, which we can abbreviate to HSNY. Welcome to the show, Miranda. It's wonderful to have you with us this morning, stroke night. Yeah, thanks for having me. Right, so... um, I'm just going to go with the most obvious question here as a starter. Mm. How does one become a librarian? Yeah, well, it's been a serendipitous path. I don't know if there's just one way to become a librarian or especially a watched librarian like me. Um, In my case, I did a PhD in English and I was studying a group of women who started their own printing press in 19th century London, and they printed feminist periodicals, among other things. And from there, I worked at the library part time the whole time I was doing my PhD. And after finishing, I became a librarian at the University of Michigan for three years um, before starting as a librarian here in New York. And I was looking for a library job where I could work with a really interesting collection and um kind of do a lot of different things. And I always liked watches. And so it just was luck that this job was available. And I really feel like it's combined a lot of my interests and been a weirdly amazing fit for my skills. Can I ask, um, when you um, studied English and went to the PhD, did you all, was librarian always the end goal? Or was it something that you found more passionate about and wanted to end up in? There were a few... Yeah, there were a few different possibilities for me. A lot of people who are librarians do an MLS or MLIS degree, which is a master's degree in librarianship and information studies. Um, So for them, it's always been clear maybe that they want to be a librarian or an archivist. Um, For me, I loved working in the library. I started working in the library when I was an undergrad. So when I was 18 or 19, I was already, you know, shelving books and that kind of stuff. And I definitely fell in love with it. Um, So I considered going straight for the master's in librarianship, but I decided that I wanted to do a PhD because basically I really loved writing and research. um, And that was a big part of my life for about six years. And then there are kind of a few different paths you can take from that. um, And I pursued a few of them, but librarianship was ultimately the best fit for me. And I've been really happy with it. Okay, so Um, I want to. Dan, I'm yeah, just want to ask you something quickly because this is like such a it's not like a light bulb moment but it's kind of sad to just be like I didn't even know this was an option like for Asian people you're yeah. just like yeah. yeah like so in my head like a li- librarian would be like um, either you work there like part-time after like something else or like you were studying and then you were doing it part-time or um, my parents would just be like yeah the this job doesn't exist but then I'll be like the well then who are the people like you know doing this thing and whatever but it's just so crazy because now the way you describe it I was like well this is exactly the kind of stuff I would have like loved doing like researching (laughs) writing putting books in like into order and everything but yeah 
I, I can yeah. uh, paraphrase what Long Long's trying to say is we've got Asian parents, right? Yeah. And so the the narrative would have would would been like, oh, librarian um doesn't make money. So yeah. it's not an option. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but what I love about to some extent like Western culture, right, is that somebody can actually pursue their passion freely and actually mm -hmm. therefore I think it's a better system to excel because yeah. like you really like what you're doing rather than chasing something that really you know it's essentially money um that that always doesn't not always carry you through so like i'm 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 actually like inspired a bit by hearing your story miranda about how you know you you did the writing you managed to explore and then you you ended up with this uh librarian position yeah i mean even in the u.s obviously not everybody's able to pursue their passion. Yeah. I was lucky to be able to do it. Um, but also one perk of doing a PhD is that they pay you while you do it. So it's not something you pay for. It's something that they pay you for. So I got teaching experience and I was able to really spend that time studying and reading, um, which was incredible. Don't regret that at all. Very cool. Yeah. It, it sounds great, doesn't it? Like <laughs> yeah, like, like I'm so jealous right now. I'm just like, okay, let's just end this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, you know, Longa has it's never too late. There's a lot of part-time librarianship <laughs> programs. It's never too yeah. late. All right. Looking at flights to New York. <laughs> so, so my understanding of a library is as a user of a library. But mm. what does a librarian actually do? Yeah, there are a lot of different types of librarians. So I previously worked at a really large university and there were about 300 different librarians on that campus. Wow. Um, <laughs> so in that case, they were more wow. specialized. Um, my job was actually digital pedagogy librarian, which is a lot of like big words for basically I was teaching people how to use the computer to do research and to use it in teaching different programs, things like editing Wikipedia, among other things. Um, so that was my previous job. But I was looking for a job where I could use a lot of my different skills. Previously, I had worked with rare books, I had processed archival collections, I had helped people learn how to do research, I had written blog posts and articles. Um, and actually like physically process books, which I really enjoy, like putting labels on them and organizing them. I do that. Mm -hmm. So, so I wanted a job where I could do all of those things together. And being a solo librarian, I'm the only librarian at the Horological Society of New York. So I'm able to do all of those things as part of my job. So I, I help people with research when they come in and we get researchers who are interested in all types of things, people who work for auction houses, people who want to learn more about their own watches people who are writing books, either like academic books or even like novels that have a character who's a watchmaker um, and mm -hmm. people researching history. So American history, or we recently had a researcher who ended up giving a talk for us who was interested in a black watchmaker and jeweler in Harlem. And he was kind of interested in his career and how he kind of um, was able to work with the subway system um, to do timing of trains, but then also he was a jeweler and watchmaker. That was really interesting. Mm. All right. I have a question. It's kind of, yeah. um, I'm sure I'm going to like butcher this question. I'm not, and if you don't understand my question, like Dan, you need to help, like, you know, explain this. So it's like, I'm looking at these like library photos, especially where you work. And then you obviously you can see there's a theme and there's a design and like the aesthetics and how it looks right um my questions when people design libraries and uh they also choose librarians is there like a theme they're going with so do they um want you to feel something at certain libraries so similarly like if i use another example right if you go to different hotels they want their service to feel different. With some hotels, they want the cleaners to go in and out of your room when you're not there. And But you know the service is there, but it's almost like they're invisible. And then with other places, they want to be, like they want the workers to greet everyone. So is this like a thing that's like carefully designed or it just happens? I would say a combination. So our library is located in the General Society building. For those of you who have never been here, maybe live far away, it's a really cool historic building on 44th Street in Manhattan, which is known as Club Row. 
um, because there are a lot of, or were, or are a lot of private clubs there. And, um, and it's a beautiful building. We rent a space inside of that building. So it's used a lot up for TV and film shoots. It's very like old New York feeling. And obviously we appreciate that about our location. And we kind of try to curate that. Um, we want people to feel overall welcomed and comfortable. We're open to the public. We don't require any type of appointment. Anyone can come in off the street. And we do get a lot of tourists because we're located in Midtown Manhattan near things like the Empire State Building and Grand Central Station. Um, so overall, we try hard to make it a welcoming environment. We always offer people water and try to make sure they're comfortable. Um, so I think it's a combo of like how the space was already before we moved in and what we try to curate. Um, and like I said, we were sort of lucky that the space was available around the time when we had the donation of our library. So the vast majority of our collection was donated by one person. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think maybe Long Long was getting at, well, my understanding of the question was, mm -hmm. um, how is the library designed? <laughs> like, yeah. like the physical so, space? Yeah. So where, like, let's say, um, like, how do you know where to put certain books in a way? like ah okay you know like uh the, i i'm assuming that the library is designed primarily for function for use of finding books easily but is that you know how how do you even do that <laughs> absolutely good question so our library was donated by one man fortunat moller markey um and he made a database of all the books in his library but it wasn't a sort of standard format. So what we wanted was the books to be organized in a way that would be, as you say, the most useful for people trying to find books on a particular topic. So like, let's say you're interested in pocket watches, or you're just interested in escapements, or you're just interested in the development of the marine chronometer. You would mm -hmm. want to be able to find that section of the library because we have multiple sources on all of those things. So we reorganize the library according to the Library of Congress classification system, which is sort of like Dewey Decimal. They're both classification systems where they try to put the books together with other books on the same topic. So that's mm -hmm. what we did. And in fact, we're still a little bit in the process of getting everything reorganized according to that system. Um, and behind that system, we have an online catalog uh, that allows you to see what we have in the library and you can search by subject and all those kinds of things because it is a really broad collection, right? Like I said, we have books on time and timekeepers, but also calendars and windmills and musical instruments and automata. So it's really a broad collection and you need to have that organization in order to find what you want within, you know, 25,000 items, give or take that we have. So we're definitely still working on that. I wouldn't say that it's completely organized. But the system we use, it's an established system that other libraries also use around the world, not just in America, so that um, our collection can be interlinked with theirs. And if someone's looking for a particular book, they'll know it's in our library um, and be able to find it. And then once they come to the library, they'll be able to actually locate it. Mm. So so um, I'm, I'm like listening to this and learning about this. And uh, but my you know my watch geek inside me that detailed person inside me is saying, well, there's going to be some books which overlap, right? You know they're going to have that information, but they're going to have other bits of information as well. So let's say this part of the library is in the middle, so it's super accessible. Like, are those books which are potentially always most likely to be used because they tend to maybe they have the most useful information right in the middle of the library because you know eventually you know there are there are going to be some books that end up like right in the corner right like are those books like very rarely accessed you know less you know what i mean yeah that's actually a great question because librarians like to say that cataloging is an art and not a science right because there's not always a definite answer for what the book is about like you said maybe it's about two subjects and you don't know which of the two categories it should be in and you always have to make a decision about that um, as a librarian or a cataloger. And we also have someone else, in, a cataloger named Audra, who's been helping us catalog the collection offsite. But in terms of the actual location in the library, because, you know, I'm the only librarian, I'm in charge. Basically, I try to assess 
what books people are using the most and make sure that those are accessible. So I, if there's sort of a, a section that I think is going to end up in the corner in the order, and I think people aren't going to be able to reach those books, I kind of shift everything to try and make sure that people can. And also I keep some of the most commonly used books, like just out on the table when you come in. So you don't even have to look on the shelves. So that yeah. would be like George Daniels watchmaking, um, Clutton and Daniels guide to watches, you know, the big one with the watch on the front and kind of like other common reference books that I know people are going to want to look at. I just leave those in a stack on the table and come right in. They're right in front of you. Okay. Do you so, to, okay. Yeah. Do you have to read a lot of the books then? Yeah. That's what my next question yeah. was. I <laughs> yeah, wish. How do you know what's in them? Yeah. I wish I skim. I okay. wish I could just read books all day. Um, mm -hmm. Although I like other parts of my job. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I can't. So I try to get a sense mm -hmm. of what the book is about. Sometimes I'll read a book or at least look through all the pictures if I think it's really interesting. Um, but yeah, generally, I just kind of get a sense of what it's about. And a lot of our books are in different languages. Um, my German's gotten a lot better since I started this job. <laughs> I still can't speak it really, but I know a lot of the watch words and clock words that you kind of have to know to know what the book is about. Um, so we have a lot of books in German, French, um, some in Portuguese, Japanese, Chinese. So it's mm -hmm. it's a range. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that uh, the, a lot of the books that are in the library at the Horological Society of New York were donated by an individual. And forgive me, I, I can't remember his name. Um, what, how did that happen? His name is Fortunat Muller Markey, and he is a Swiss born man who, um, is still visits the library and is still around and in fact, still collecting books. He immigrated to America when he was a younger man and went to business school and worked as an executive recruiter. So he wasn't in the watch industry per se, but he always was passionate about horology. So he started collecting books, pamphlets, periodicals, postcards, basically anything he could get his hands on that has something to do with time. And um, so that's what makes it such a broad collection, because we have things that maybe no one else thought were important to preserve, uh, flyers for swap meets um, and reports from uh, conferences or conventions, all sorts of things that might be really hard to access other places we have because of Fortunat and his dedication to completeness. So he collected all of this material over more than 20 years, and he kept it in this house in New Jersey. And he also has uh, an apartment in New York and he was looking to donate the collection somewhere that the largest number of people could really use it. So mm -hmm. New York was a good choice for that because so many people visit New York or are located in the New York area. So he's just really happy that people are finally able to, to see and use his collection and that we're highlighting it in this way. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, but don't you wish that this could happen for you, like with stuff that you don't want, <laughs> like all your used clothes, and then you could be like, <laughs> somewhere, and someone will like curate it for me, and then I won't feel bad. Yeah, okay. of course, you could get a tax break for it. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll take your... I'll take your Birkins yeah. off you, Lung, and uh, oh, I think and I think your shoe collection is a bit <laughs> of a, a ridiculous. So I'm sure I can make a buck out buck out of that too. <laughs> Okay, so I wanted to ask you, um, I know you um, also, I mean, you collected pens, right? And you did, like, I don't know if you still wear, like, a vintage watch. Um, I think I wanted to ask you, um, after reading about so many watches and history and all this, has it shifted your taste? And uh, do you now feel like you have greater appreciation for watches? Oh, 100%. And just a theoretical understanding of watches, obviously, which I had no understanding of before. Uh, mm. I still like vintage watches a lot. I like smaller watches. Uh, mm. And right now I'm wearing a 1980s Cartier tank must. And mm. But I also have several mm. tiny vintage Seikos because I love how small and cute they are. Um, so um, I never would have known that those watches were around and available 
um, and affordable or anything like that before doing this job. I've also taken one of our watchmaking classes. So that's helped me understand. Oh, wow. Um, that's helped me understand how a watch works and definitely made me appreciate the kind of mechanics of it more. Although I always thought watches were cool, which is like I said, why I thought this job was such a great fit. I always wore a watch before I actually had a 1920s ladies watch that I would wear around <laughs> until it stopped working. Um, and so, yeah, I absolutely know much more about them, which makes me appreciate them more. Um, I'm not like a big time collector, but, <laughs> but I love watches and seeing other people's watches as well. Do you get a lot of collectors uh, then that go there and pop in? A ton. Yeah. Okay. A ton of collectors. A lot of people who just want to know more about their watches that they're wearing. Or also we have an exhibit in the library right now. It's a collection of watches owned by Alex Koo, who's a California based collector. Mm -hmm. um, okay. They're pocket watches and they're just some really important names uh, within, within the history of watches, you know, Bertoud and Patek mm -hmm. and all sorts of important watches that we have on display right now. So a lot of people want to see those. Um, but yeah, a huge Part of our membership base is people who collect watches not everybody but it is a it is a big demographic very cool oh my God. yeah because i was going to say that sounds so good you know yeah. you're a single librarian with all this knowledge <laughs> around too. you all i need is a cup of coffee and i just yeah. stay there and read and look at pictures but the only yeah. thing would be what would be missing is if i could see watches but then you've got an exhibit there so mm -hmm. i can see watches yeah. and pocket watches as well like yeah come on over like, what is yep. there to complain about? <laughs> you know? Nothing, really. I'll even make you a coffee. You know, we have an espresso machine. Yeah. I, I need I, to get one of those T-shirts. Give me a coffee and it'll say, like, fuck off, leave me alone. You know, <laughs> like... <laughs> right. Um, so let's talk about how we as a public use your library, right? So how do we use your library? And um, let's say, you know, I'm in, well, I'm not in New York. So is there, are there any services that I can, you know, um, experience? Yeah. So on our website, the Horological Society of New York website, under the library section, you can find more information. So you can visit the library anytime without an appointment, Monday through Friday, 10 to 5. I'm there, except for now, because we're having like a flooding incident, not in the library, just outside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, anyone can visit the library 10 to 5. And I do recommend that if you're doing research on a particular topic, you make a research appointment just because it allows me to be prepared and show you the most relevant materials for whatever you're researching. So definitely if you're doing an intense research appointment, um, contact me ahead of time. But if you just want to browse, come on in. Um, in terms of people who are not located in New York, although we do get a lot of people who are on vacation who come in. But if you can't come to New York, we don't currently have material that's digitized, but that's something we're working towards now, having images of some of our material online. One of the things I do is I write a blog and an art, it's also on Hodinkee. So I write articles for Hodinkee about our collection. So I try to bring people into the library that way because I feature like some of the coolest and weirdest stuff that we have. Um, my last post was sort of a, it actually is not on Hodinkee yet, but it will be soon. It's a Halloween post. So I wrote about like <laughs> all sorts of creepy and scary things. Um, a new novel called Death Watch about a watch that can kill you. And also <laughs> about, you know, human automata and about um, radium watches, of course, and their effects. So um, I featured a book called Radium Girls that actually glows in the dark. The book glows. Mm -hmm. Um so it was a fun post to write, and uh, I hope people will enjoy the library that way. And of course, if you have a research question, you can always email me. I can't necessarily do in-depth research for everyone who has a question, but I'll always try my best to see if I can find the I'll answer. Be, I'll yeah, I'll always... University students who are like, can you just do my work for me? <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't be ideal, yeah. but I would always try my best to answer the question if I get it. Um, and if I can find it in the collection, I'll definitely let you know. Or if not, I'll say, here's a resource online that I found um, and mm -hmm. hopefully point you in the right direction. I have another random question that is like just stupid, but um, because the environment is so nice, stupid. right? No, but this one is actually stupid. Like, I wonder if people go in 
and pretend to want to browse like watch books but actually they just want a place to sit <laughs> and just chill well like, that would that be okay happen? that would okay. be okay I mean I yeah. wouldn't want someone turning it into their full-time office but if someone wants yeah. to come and enjoy the yeah. environment and being surrounded by books they're more than welcome <laughs> yeah. to do that okay That's I don't check at the door whether you have an interest <laughs> in watches okay so, talking about um you know interesting books you, you clearly know the library really well what book you know really just surprised you or left a lasting impression yeah there have been a few surprising things I mean one of the things I love the best is Bertude's essay sur lower lingerie which is an 18th century first edition it's actually two volumes of Bertude's work that has these incredible fold-out illustrations that would really show you how a clock or watch works um, especially in the 18th century right you wouldn't have a ton of different ways to find that out there's not any YouTube <laughs> there is not any way that you can look that up um, so that's been that's one of the, our sort of prize pieces but I find weird things all the time like we have a book about jukeboxes uh, because that's technically a type of automaton and it's really beautifully illustrated with different neon jukeboxes and I found something the other day that looked like a book, but when I opened it, it was actually um, different watch crowns showing you different sizes of watch crowns. So there were actual pieces of metal in, inside what looked like a book showing you what different sizes of watch crowns look like. We've got a book about the Loch Ness Monster. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that you wouldn't expect. Um, so I find surprising things all the time. I find beautiful things all the time. And those are the kind of things that I try to highlight when I write about the collection. Mm. why is there a book about the Loch Ness Monster? Rupert Gold wrote it um, and he also wrote a, a famous book about marine chronometers and among oh. other things so we have his works ah right okay so with all this extensive literature you must have also must be really transparent or evident how the watch industry has changed over the decades you know, coming from something which was very functional and much needed in society because to, everyone needed to know the time to it then progressing into after the quartz crisis into a bit more of a luxury space, right? And then subsequently how the watch has changed. It must be very interesting to, to note, you know, to see that transition through literature. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our oldest book is from 1652. So... Wow. We have really a whole range, not just the history of watches, but the history of horology. So time telling in general, you know, we've got books on sundials and that kind of thing, too, um, before people were even had invented watches. Um, so definitely the whole sweep of horological history is evident. Um, and yeah, I would say we have books that are still really research heavy and scientific, even that came out recently. So it's not always just a clear line between like, first it was technical and now it's luxury or something like that. It's mm. it's definitely a more of a messy continuum than that. What was that first book? The oldest book? What is that book about? It's a chronology. It's in Latin. And it basically tries to put events in order. So events that happened in history, events that happened in the Bible, basically at a time when people might not have had a ton of resources for kind of figuring out oh. what history happened. It tries to wow. put those like, things in order. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense why that book would be written. It, it doesn't obviously now in modern you know, like the internet, but back then you would have lacked so many resources to know that. Yeah, this one was written by a monk. So he probably had access to a library that had other books, historical books that he could have drawn on. But still, like most people just didn't have access to the kind of quantity of information and misinformation and disinformation that we have now. <laughs> so um, I'd like to ask, people can go and use the library, but are they allowed to take books out? Not yet. That is something we also have on the agenda. So um, we want a portion of our collection to be a circulating collection. So you could, members particularly, could take out a book. Um, but right now, since we're still getting the collection organized, we're kind of in the end stages of that. We had to wait a little bit before we do that. But we will have that. Okay. And right now, it's sounding such a great job. Like, sounds so good. <laughs> like... 
But if there's one thing you could change about the library, yeah. what would it be? Um, I wish more people knew about it. I mean, obviously, that's what we're trying to do. We have an amazing base of people who know about the library and enjoy researching and using the library, but obviously could always be with more people. And I want everybody to know that this is something they can access. So there's that. Also, a lot of new watch books are very expensive. Um, and <laughs> I, I wish that they were a little bit more accessible because I would buy, you know, every book that came out that was relevant, but that would be an enormous, enormous amount of money. So I, you know, I have to be selective. Mm-hmm. I know like the Horological Society is sponsored by a lot of brands, right? And it would be so, it would be so good if people that write about books, you know, could just donate a book to the library. You know what I mean? Like brands, I'm sure, you know, it's not going to take a huge amount for them just to give a book there. And, and anybody that's going to the library to look at that book is clearly in the target market of who they want to read mm -hmm. that book. Um, and even if I, I, I'm just thinking about myself here, but if I was a, an author of a watch book, even to have it in the Horological Society of New York yeah. would be quite prestigious for me. Like I'd be mm -hmm. very proud and emotional and I'd love to give a speech about it. So anybody that's out there, just donate the book so that Horological Society don't have to keep mm -hmm. buying them. Oh, thank you. Yeah, actually authors do donate their books to us sometimes, which I very much appreciate and I welcome. Um, but yes, that's a good idea about the brands. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I also want to ask, we asked about what was the most interesting book, but what's the most useful book that you find in terms of watches and most people like seem to use it a lot because maybe I need to add that into my collection. Yeah. George Daniel's watchmaking is definitely up there. Um, uh, there are a number of kind of encyclopedia type books that we use, but also a lot of people seem to like the kind of price guides that we have, even though it's funny because like, obviously the information in them is, you know, even if it was just a few years ago, it's, it's kind of outdated now, right? The price changes so much. I think people just like to see like what their watches could have sold for at the time that, you know, mm -hmm. a long time ago. Um, so people use those books a lot. George Daniels Watchmaking, Clutton and Daniels book watches. That's a big one. Um, but yeah, I would say that a lot of times people are more focused on whatever specific type of watch they're researching, like dive watches or railroad watches or something mm -hmm. like that. So yeah. it really depends on people's interests. But yeah, George Daniels Watchmaking is good. There's also a book called The Magic of Watchmaking. Um, and I think I forget the author's name right now, but that's that's pretty helpful. Okay. And I'd like to ask, after you've uh, taken this job and you're surrounded by watch books, has it um, changed your watch journey in terms of your taste in watches and what you like and appreciate now? I don't think it has really changed my taste. I think it's just that I now know like what's available. I yeah. always liked tiny watches. I thought they were beautiful and I thought the way that they're able to pack that amount of engineering into such a small space is amazing um so I've always liked small watches um I really like green so I tend to gravitate toward watches that have some sort of green detail or a green strap so I think that's just my esoteric personal taste and I don't know if that's really changed but I think there are just like so many um watches in the world that I wouldn't have known anything about before starting this job and weird yeah. types of watches too yeah right well that was my uh, last question for the main interview we now go on to the reverso round miranda so you get to flip the flip well flip whatever onto us so please shoot away um i guess my questions are do you have a favorite book either on watches or not watches um i I, for watches, um, I do have the George Daniels book, mm -hmm. right? And uh, I haven't read through it all yet. But um, it's it's kind of like this, I don't know, special book. It's a special book. So, I, you know, you want to give it the right time. Um, but it's funny because I had guests over last night and they saw my collection of books on watches. And uh, the first book they gravitated to was uh, the Cartiers. Mm. Um, 
that was released I don't know, a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, Francesca Cardi. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, that book, when I read it, was a very, very enjoyable read because, mm-hmm. um, you know, you think you know a bit about Cartier and you read that and it takes you so many more levels of appreciation mm. of of that brand the people behind the brand and and adds a lot more character to that brand for me at least um so that was one book and then the second book that i really enjoyed um was grand complication um that was recommended me to me by john reardon uh, again story orientated I, I just love stories right and but, but the fact that this story is true as well, and so is the Cartier book, totally true, right? Or based in truth. Um, just two collectors, you know, that you can only dream about what their collection would have been like competing against each other at the same time, but also being titans of their industry. Um, it just fascinates me what, what kind of individuals they would have been in the real life. And to read that book and follow that journey, it, it, yeah, it, it had me from the start. So those would be like my two like that come to mind. Great choices, and also both things that we have in the library. So, if anyone's wondering, <laughs> you can come. You can come and read both of that books, both of those books at our library. Okay, um, for me, so two books then. Uh, same thing, the Cartier one. I found it like very easy to read and just interesting. But I think the difference is reading the Cartier one didn't really make me like appreciate the watches, but it made me realize. Um, that I just never really paid attention to the high jewelry or the jewelry in Cartier. I was just like, okay, it's like mass market, whatever. It's just like this. But um, then you hear about the way the Indians like source for the stones and everything. And then you're like, okay, there's so much work into like that they put into this. And it's, it's actually this special. And then I think there was a section talking about like the French railing and how they were inspired by little things like this. So that actually made me look at the brand very differently. But I think the my favorite one, though, is um, the Paddock book by Nick Folks. And the funny thing mm-hmm. is I had actually gotten the book and left it there for one year and I didn't read it because I don't know why, but I was just like, I don't have time to read a, like a picture book. So I kind of just like left it there. And then one day I thought, um, okay, I'm just going to flip through this. And I decided to like set myself this rule like okay you just have to read 10 pages a day and then use that bookmark thing but then after the first 10 pages I just kept reading and reading because I realized wait there's a story and it flows and it really like makes it really easy for you to understand like how Paddock went from this to like now this and you could see the whole transition and it yeah it was just really well written easy to read super nice like illustrations and yeah I really really enjoyed it yeah, I'm sure you guys have that book too. So. We do, but yeah. yes, great, great choices yeah. all. All right. Yeah. Okay, we now go on to our uh, last round, which is the pump push around. So um, this I, I didn't have this prepared, but you mentioned that you like writing, mm. right? And I just wondered like, what kind of writing do you do apart from the editorial for Hadinki? What, yeah, what writing do you enjoy? Oh, wow. I really like nonfiction types of writing. So like that kind of article, I have written some poetry in the past. And also I like the kind of writing where you're basically doing background research. I know that sounds kind of boring, but I've been quoted in like three New York Times articles this year, <laughs> which was a surprise because basically I've been able to answer reference questions about watches. Um, one of them was about erotic watches, which is pretty fun to research. And I <laughs> write up what I found. <laughs> I write up what I find and try to make it sound interesting. Obviously that wasn't that difficult for the erotic watches, but um yeah, I just like the, trying to explain something that's kind of complicated or maybe esoteric and make it seem fun, interesting, and welcoming for someone who doesn't know about the topic. Okay, next question. Um, I have to ask this. What's your favorite book of all time? Come on. Uh, probably Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Uh, okay, right. Long time favorite of many, but 
can I ask you, did you like that book the first time you read it? Because we have to read it in England, part of English literature, yeah. you know, have to, right? So I'm there, like 14 year old reading it, thinking, what is it. this? Yeah. yeah, what is this trouble? Like, honestly, Darcy, I mean, come on, man. Like, <laughs> he ain't that cool. And then, like, you know, like, <laughs> well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Just... I'm like, mashing your I think you've here. just re- repeated the thesis of the book, which is that Darcy isn't that cool. Uh, <laughs> but yes I did like it the first time I read it however I did see the movie first and that definitely influenced me when I was 14 years old reading that book for the first time <laughs> okay right um a, a question which is similar to that question if you could purchase an original copy of any book in the world right what would it be mm, that is a good question I actually have a book that's one of the subjects of my research when I was doing my dissertation. So it was all typeset and printed by women at the Victoria Press, which is pretty unusual for the time that it came out. Um, So it's a real treasure of my collection. Um, And I love having that. Um, Definitely, I would love a first edition Pride and Prejudice. That's a little out of my budget, but I wouldn't mind. Um, Or for the library, I would love to have JP Morgan's collection of watches. So he, we have a facsimile copy or a reproduction of his collection, but that, that book is a very expensive book that I would love to have in the library. Um, it's a catalog of JP Morgan's collection, which he eventually donated to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You mentioned like, um, let's say Jane Austen's book being really expensive, right? Like um, I know, because that's funny, because me and Long actually talked about collecting books at like a off, off you know quite a while ago um but how much does that go for do you even do you even know like oh I don't know definitely yeah so books can go for millions of dollars that's not an unusual thing um I I I would guess the Jane Austen first edition Jane Austen Pride and Prejudice is probably in the hundreds of thousands of dollars range but I don't really know at this point (laughs) yeah because with with everything becoming more digital it's likely that these books are going to become even well, yeah, more valuable, right? Because I was looking at, because um, I'm a big Harry Potter fan. So I know, but there was one recently that came out, like a first edition. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that just sold for ridiculous money. And apparently the first edition has a, a print mistake on page whatever and, and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. And uh, oh, it would just be so cool to have some of these books, obviously encased, you know, to show people uh, this is the first mm-hmm. edition. Yeah. But yeah, not basically, cheap. what makes a book valuable is, is it rare? Is it hard to get? Um, mm. Not just is it old, but how many of them are there still around? So sometimes books that seem like they wouldn't be very valuable can be just because people loved them and read them to pieces and they fell apart. So there's only four mm. copies left in the world. Um, mm. And also really old books sometimes hold up better than newer books because mm. of the type of paper that they used back in the 17th century, which tended to be a little bit sturdier and, and didn't decay as quickly as more modern paper. Oh, yeah, so, so so these first edition Harry Potters, right? Exactly what Miranda said, which was um, a lot of those first editions actually went to library. So, because obviously people go to the library to read more mm-hmm. books, right? So, there's, you know, they're going to read Harry Potter. And so they deteriorated so quickly mm-hmm. because it's mm-hmm. not, you know, it's a library yeah. and there's so many people using it. So there's, that's why it's so rare. It wasn't many to be in with. And then because a lot of them deteriorated, it's like hardly any. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. My um, next question. Could you name a book that is in a different language to your, well, to English, not English, um, that you wish you could read in its original text and fully understand in the language it's written in? Hmm. No, I'll give you some easier ones after this one. (laughs) Yeah, no, we certainly have many books in our library that are in other languages, as I mentioned. My French is okay. Uh, So like Bertude's books, I can kind of at least understand what's going on. My German is not as good. Um, (laughs) But there's definitely poetry I would like to read in the original, um, just because when you're reading something like Baudelaire, which is French poetry, like there's only so much of it that you can get if you're reading a translation. Um, and, you know, so I think that something like that, that's more kind of artistic and not like technical manuals <laughs> would be something that I would love to read in the original with fluency. So Baudelaire is 
what his most famous poetry is called Pleur de Mal. And, you know, I would love to read those in the original. I have read them in the original, but I would love to read them with a native understanding. <laughs> yeah, I, that, like my father is an like, avid reader, loves reading, right? Like I've never seen him not really like without a book. And um, he reads Chinese literature. And I really wish mm. I could um, understand yeah. Chinese level that he does. Because mm. he talks about um, Red Chamber, which is a, a like one of the, four classics in Chinese literature and also the three kingdoms. And I've, I've read like the three kingdoms in, in like English and it, it just doesn't seem to be as great as he's saying, you know, and, and not just him, everybody else is saying it's great. Yeah. And I'm just reading it in English. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm swear a lot of this is lost in translation. So I, yeah, I wish I could do that. Right. Yeah. There's a new translation of the Iliad out by, um, uh, I forget her name right now, but there's a translation of the Iliad out that people are saying is really good because I was thinking of picking it up, not because I'm a big fan of the Iliad, but because I'm never going to read ancient Greek, right? So <laughs> it would be great yeah. to be able to read that in a translation that people think is giving you the full sense of what it was like when it was first written. Right. Moving away a little bit from uh, books, other hobbies outside of books. Hobbies? What are those? No, I'm just joking. I <laughs> I love reality television. I, yeah. I if that's a hobby. I am in it. Uh, <laughs> so I do watch a lot of TV aside from reading. Um, and current favorite, Below Deck, probably. And <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not in any way ashamed. I'm very proud. <laughs> and I like to make prints. I make linoleum prints. Um, just, you know, on occasion, not all the time. Um, and yeah, those are, I don't really have a ton of hobbies. I would say, uh, is snacking a hobby? I yeah, like, it is. It's I a like serious food. Hobby. Yeah. I like food and I live in an amazing area in New York where there's a ton of incredible food. So, okay. So, that's so, a hobby. so, so, um, I'm just going to pick pizza, right? New York's famous for pizza. Love pizza. Yeah, like there's like Joe's, there's Bleecker Street, um, mm -hmm. there's like a few others. Uh, the Farah, yeah. Um, can I ask you, in your opinion, you know, which one's the best? Well, I'm gonna get in trouble with other New Yorkers because I actually have an opinion <laughs> on this as unpopular. I really like this place called Corner Slice, and it's on the corner, but also they do square pizzas, and it's not really traditional new york style pizza but i think it's incredible okay yeah is it are, are you like is it the bread or is it the sauce well it's the shape but also it's sicilian style pizza um which uh, is sort of like puffier like more like focaccia and, but it's really good all right and uh my last question of the pump pusher if you're going to recommend one place to go to eat if we if we if long long and i turned up right to your library and then we'd done our session at the library and then you said okay let's go for food where would be the place you'd be taking us well i have to say that midtown where our, our library is is not the best food location it's all right i'm um, not happy to travel <laughs> a place that i often take guests is called mom's and it's kind of like a fun gay brunch location so they have like giant milkshakes with slices of cake on top and like um, a burrito, <laughs> but the outside is a pancake. Oh, oh, <laughs> um, so that is what I would say for a fun experience. But so that's like food are, coma. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah just you definitely that. have to lie down yeah. afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> you definitely have to lie down afterwards. But like in terms of like actually amazing food, of course, there's incredible restaurants in this area. Um, Mom's is, is a fun experience and it is tasty, but definitely uh, one of my favorites is a burrito box. They do really good burritos and other related food. <laughs> I love these names. Yeah, me too. Yeah. But you can just tell like Miranda loves food. Like when you yeah. talk about food, like the excitement <laughs> in your eyes and like. I'm um, really passionate. I'm really passionate about food. So, so I watch a lot of food YouTube. Yeah, I love that uh -huh. stuff. You know. Um, so I know that was my last question, but I'm still going to ask the question. So, um, I saw that there's a place called Cats. 
right? Cassis, yeah. Yeah, Cassis, that does pastrami, right? And that sandwich, when I look at it, yeah, everybody says it's good. And I'm thinking, is it that good? Or is it like YouTube making it look good? Because it it doesn't look as good as they're saying it is. You you know what I mean? In the the thing. Um, Yeah. So is it good? Well, I'm not the right person to ask because I am a vegetarian. So I have not eaten that sandwich in person. But it, it, I think that you really, when you go to a place like that, it's for the experience, you know, the where, where, where I met Sally type experience that they, that's what it's famous for. Um, <laughs> but I can say that the chicken noodle soup, the matzo ball soup, and the pickles are both excellent, uh, worth it, in my opinion. Okay. Well, I'll just say when you ever come to like Asia, uh, Hong Kong, yeah, Long Long here. We'll do exactly the same and take you to like the best places, yeah. To Ooh, eat. excellent! I would love she, that. I would she love knows that. Everything like the back of her hand, and she can get into places as well easily. <laughs> I've um, heard the food in Hong Kong is incredible. I would love that. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's really good. Yeah. And guess what? I'm going next week. <laughs> oh, jealous! <laughs> so jealous. Right. Um, thank you so much, Miranda, for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure um, to have you on. And uh, thank you for, you know, answering what must have been very mundane questions for you. Um, <laughs> Not at but all. They were absolutely so fascinating for myself. I'm glad you really... enjoy it. I, I'm glad yeah. someone asked me, like, what a librarian does, because I don't get that question a lot. I'm happy to answer it. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, and and you know what? It sounds such a great job because I I, if you said that, everybody's oh, so boring. But I'm just like thinking, what a great job. Yeah. I'm glad. I am happy to spread the gospel of librarianship and I hope that everybody enjoys the library. <laughs> so audience, there you go. That's Miranda. If you have time and let's say if I'm ever in New York, I'm definitely dropping down there. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. if there is a storm, um, I'm mm-hmm. dropping down there. So make sure you utilize this resource because it just sounds amazing. And let me know if any of you go, let me know what it's like. So take care and have a good one. Bye. Bye. As always, thank you for listening to the waiting list podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at the waiting list podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.